Hey, let's pray. Lord, we don't have to dedicate this time to you. You've already claimed it. This is your story. Our lives are in your hands. Lord, we pray for clarity now and a real understanding and a conviction about the promises of redemption that you've sown into your word and how we see that evidenced in our own lives, how you're saving us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make these stories relevant and near to our own lives as we study them. And thank you for the opportunity to do so together. In Christ's name, amen. All right, friends, as we've been going through Casket Empty, this is a course looking specifically at the redemptive story of the Bible. Remember that every story that we have has something to do with God's saving, God's delivering, God's redeeming. And so this is not just a um, literature class. It's a different kind of, of story. And of course, it's centered in Jesus Christ. I always do that. It's told throughout history. Yes. Jesus at its center because of Christ's empty casket, we find our own guarantee that actually life does not end in death. Death is the transformation into a new life where sin and death are no more. And that's guaranteed in Jesus's empty casket. So with that, turn your eyes toward me and away from the banner, and we're going to see if we can review casket together. So casket, C stands for? Creation. Creation. A stands for? Abraham. Abraham. S stands for? Sinai. Sinai. K stands for? E stands for? Exile. Exile. Good. And T stands for? Temple. Temple. I have no experience as a cheerleader, but I am, I am that good. Um, good. Now let's go back and review symbols. Allow the symbol or the image of each period to come to mind. So we're going to start with C, creation. What's the image? Trees. Trees. How many? Two, Two of them. Great. Uh, what's the image for Abraham? It's a gift. It's a present. Think of a, here, just look at it really quick. Let this sink in. Today we're going to talk a whole lot about how God's redemption, his salvation, is not earned. It's not merited. It's given to us, just like a present. Okay, eyes back on me. All right, what is the symbol for S, Sinai? Great, two tablets, the law, great, law of Moses. Um, how about for kings? Crown. crown, what color? Blue, that's going to be important, as opposed to the red crown once we get to talking about the kingdom time period. How about for exile? Symbol. What is it? Vulture. Great. Bird of prey, condor, vulture, whatever you think it might be. We definitely saw some in Hamul at the fall retreat. I was like, <laughs> girls, stay away from those birds. <laughs> are those condors? What are they? Turkey, Turkey vultures. Okay. Yeah. They were all over Minor Jacks. Yeah. Um, by the way, Andrew works at Indian Hills Camp. And so yesterday, as we were all out there and we were doing zip line, and archery and petting zoo and everything else. Andrew goes by Omaha, that's his camp name. And you were, you were just the perfect tour guide, man. You're the perfect master of ceremonies, way to go. <laughs> All right, great, so bird of prey for exile. It reminds us that actually with obedience comes blessing, but with disobedience to God's law comes curse. 
What does a curse look like? The birds of the air will pick at your bones, basically. Okay. Uh, what's the symbol for T? Temple. Does the temple have a cloud on it? No. no, it does not have a cloud on it, which is different than the temple that we're going to see when they build the tabernacle in the desert of Sinai and when they build the temple under Solomon's reign. There's a cloud. The cloud represents the presence of God. Okay, real quick, we don't have to remember dates, but it is good to remember events. At the, uh, for creation, we have no dates that we really deal with, but for Abraham, the very first date we get is 2100 BC. What happens at the beginning of Abraham? Call of Abraham. Awesome. Uh, the beginning of the book of Sinai, the date is, or the period of Sinai, the date is 1450. What happens then? Great. Delivery out of Egypt, call of Moses. It's all just right around there. The date for the period of Kings is 1050. What happens then? Saul, who is our first king of Israel. Great. And then the date for the period of exile is 586. Great. Exile into Babylon, right? They're exiled out and the destruction of the temple. So that event that I referred to in the sermon, um, there are basically, we're going to see that there's three key dates because there are three big deportations of God's people, 605, 539, and then 586. These are the deportations, 605, 597, where they carry off people like Ezekiel and the former king, Jehoiachin, and then 586 is finally when the temple is destroyed. Okay, and then our very last date for the period of temple is 539. What happens then? They're able to, great, they're able to go from Babylon back to Jerusalem. The Babylonians are no longer in charge. It's under a, a king named Cyrus who's a Persian, and he allows them to go back, and eventually they'll rebuild the temple. And then the very last date we have for our timeline is 430 B.C., what happens then? Great, the very last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi, or you can think our only Italian prophet, <laughs> Malachi. Okay, quick review from last week. What do you remember about what mankind was created to do? Think about this symbol. What was mankind created to do in the garden? Great, rule. Yeah. Whoever said that? Rule. Absolutely. Rule in whose image? God's image. Great. So when we hear um, God made mankind in his image, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. We remember the statue that some ancient kings would set up. They make an image in their likeness, in their image, and it is to have the properties, the characteristics of their kingly rule. In the same way, we are made as vice regents. We rule in God's manner. But they succeed in doing that very long? Maybe not for very long, I don't know. They end up disobeying God. And what is the result of Adam's disobedience? What the, fall. the fall. What happens in the fall? A few different things. Great. Curse on the earth, curse on childbirth. Spiritual death. And what does that come from? Great. I think that's what's key is separation from God. We're going to hear this idea that the only thing that makes Israel special, the book of Deuteronomy says, the only thing, they weren't large in size, they weren't really that righteous, as we're going to see, it's that God puts his presence with that people. And so at one point, 
the Israelites are going to enter into the promised land and God says, because they didn't trust me, they can go into the promised land, but I won't go with them. And Moses intercedes. Remember that Moses kind of stands as a type of Jesus Christ, as this great intercessor, a go-between, a holy God and a sinful people. And Moses says, it's not worth, God, nothing is worth it. What's the point if you don't go with us? We need your presence. And so the great event is God's presence being with them in the wilderness and then God's presence being with them in the temple when the temple is finally built by King Solomon. But the, the most awful event is when the prophet Ezekiel, before the temple is destroyed, Ezekiel has an image of the, t- the presence of God in a cloud leaving the temple house, leaving the court of the temple, and going to the far mountains in the east. The, the presence of God leaves his people. And this is the great grievance, the great you know, awful, horrific event, is that God's presence is no longer there. So when they rebuild the temple, the old men are mourning because they remember the temple is only significant because pro- God's presence is there. Well, it's not there. The, the glory cloud does not descend on, um, on the temple then. So what is Jesus coming to do? Emmanuel, God with us, is the Hebrew for God is going to come be with his people again. In the person Jesus Christ incarnate and then in the powerful work of the Holy Spirit at the event of Pentecost that we read about in the book of Acts. All right, where do you see patterns of silt, sin, judgment, and grace? Do you remember last week we were going, sin, judgment, grace, bling, I see it. What were some examples from last week where somebody sins, God judges, but in the midst of that judgment, God is actually gracious? What are some examples that you remember? The flood. Andrew, unpack that for us. Great, great. And do you remember kind of this summary statement? The intention of mankind's heart was only evil all the time. It says pre-flood. Post-flood, what's the summary statement? The intentions of mankind's heart was only evil all the time. The condition of the heart did not change. And yet God makes a promise, a covenant to Abraham. I'm not going to destroy the world again, at least in this way even though the condition of mankind's heart has not improved. Sin, judgment, grace, great. Do we see any other examples of somebody sins, there's judgment, but there's grace? Zan. God provides a covering for, for them in the garden. Great. Yeah, say a little bit more about that. Well, he provided uh, animal skin so that it was a sacrifice of an animal. Yeah, yeah. Because what did, they, what did Adam and Eve realize about themselves after they sinned? They were naked and thus they were ashamed. They were ashamed. So God covers their shame, makes, makes a covering. It's a great example. How about, do you remember what God tells Adam? The day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. That's what he tells him. The day that you, that you eat of it, you will surely die. It's actually a grace that they're still given 
some sort of life, even as they're exiled from the garden. I can think of one more example. Do you remember with Cain? What happens with Cain? Say it again, Pauline. Awesome. Exactly. Okay, so I've taken my brother's life. God, how do I make sure that somebody else doesn't take my life? God marks him to actually protect him. Sin, judgment, grace. I think those are great examples here, but we're going to see all throughout the Old Testament, whenever it's easy for us to say, oh, the Old Testament, you only see a God of judgment. Already we see God's amazing favor and grace on his people. And today's lesson about Abraham, we see favor and grace all over this story. So let's talk Abe. Abe daddy um, is going to be centered, as far as Bible books, Job uh, was likely written after the time period of Abraham, but it's about a man who lived during the patriarchs. And that would be Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, his son Joseph. And so the story of those four generations is told in the book of Genesis, chapters 12 through 50. Jerry preached on primordial history. That's Genesis 1 through 11. We covered that last week. The whole rest of the book is no longer about the big world. It's about one family. And the very first father of that family is Abraham. God is going to call Abraham in 2100, and that's going to take us all the way to the period of Sinai. God calls Abraham out of Ur. Listen to this. Joshua says during the period of Sinai, going into Kings, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates River, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. God does not call Abraham because he's a good person. He doesn't call him because of his righteousness. The call of Abraham comes because of God's grace and election. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham went out by faith. He didn't know where he was going. The land that God is giving Abraham, the promised land, is the land of Canaan, which is modern-day Israel. We're going to learn that Abraham is elderly and his wife is barren cannot have children. He's 75 years old when God calls him, and because Sarah is elderly as well, she can have no children. We visited just briefly last week the genealogies that are really important. So genealogy in, in Genesis 5, taking Adam to uh, um, Noah. And then there's another genealogy taking Noah to Abraham. The genealogy of Shem, which is in Genesis 11, it shows 10 gen generations from Shem to Abraham. All of these genealogies have 10 generations, but the last one, when we get to Abraham, there's a cliffhanger. There's a dot, 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 because it doesn't finish. You don't know who Abraham's son will be. And the whole, the whole point of God's promise to Abraham is that he will bear children as numerous as the stars in the heavens or as the sand on the seashore. The point is, try to count them. Good luck. They're going to be that numerous. But if Abraham's barren and so is his wife, what? and the genealogy doesn't say that he has any children yet, it's, it's kind of this way of telling the story with a, a cliffhanger. Uh, this is important because 
Abraham has a son named Isaac. His wife, Rebekah, is barren. And then they're going to have a son, Jacob, and his wife, Rachel, is, you want to guess? Barren. Do you remember last week, God reiterates a covenant that he made to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, right? Then he reiterates it again, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, to Noah. And then he reiterates it one more time, this time in Genesis 17, but rather than saying, you be fruitful and multiply, what does God say? I will, I will cause you to be, I will make you be fruitful and multiply you. So God is going to be the one to bring about his promises. Talk about grace. Are you guys hot or is this just radiating heat? Cynthia, would you mind pressing down on that um, thermostat? Just click it down two or three times, that'd be great. Um, sure, that might help. Uh, so let's open up to the book of Genesis, and we're looking at chapter 12. And we're going to read these promises. So we're looking at Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 first. Who'd be up for reading for me? Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Andrew, can I give that one to you? And then, right after Andrew reads, we're also going to look at Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. This is what is called the Abrahamic Covenant. Everybody say, Abrahamic Covenant! Abrahamic Covenant! Great. All right, just a sec. All right, let's hear what covenant God is making with Abraham. Andrew, go for it. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Very good. In you, all of the people of the earth will be blessed. Think about that phrase for a second. <clears throat> what is that telling us? Say it again, John. The Messiah is coming. There will be a lot of people. And who is this blessing eventually for? Just Abraham's family? Yeah. So through you, the whole world will be blessed. Do you know what a conduit is? A conduit? PVC pipe. All right, so if you're trying to get something somewhere and you can't run the cable by itself, you're going to use a conduit. You're going to run it through. So God's blessing is going to go through a family, specifically Abraham's family. And this will become through his promised son, promised son, not his first biological son, who will be Ishmael, but his, the, the promised son, the son that God gives him through Sarah, the nation of Israel will come, the Jews, through Isaac. All right, let's flip the page, my French friend Felipe Lapage, to Genesis 17 now. And who would be up for reading verses 1 through 8? John, thank you.
Very good. Thanks, John. <clears throat> These same promises, as you read through Genesis, they're going to be reiterated to Abraham's son, Isaac. And then they're going to be reiterated to his son, Jacob. Don't forget, I promise to do these things for you. And what we're going to find is that these promises are ultimately going to be fulfilled in, take a guess, imagine that, Jesus, the point of the whole story. Let's, uh, let's Bible surf. Head over to Galatians in your New Testament. Acts and the letters of Paul, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, all Galatians. And we're looking at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 15 and read a few of these verses. <clears throat> Galatians 3:15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it. So you don't get rid of it or add to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. The Hebrew word for offspring, the Greek word for offspring, it's kind of like sheep. This is my sheep, these are my sh sheep, right? That works, right? Or fish. So in the word itself, it can either mean plural or singular. Paul is interpreting this and he says, God was talking about one specific offspring. And that specific offspring is the seed of Abraham. This is Jesus Christ. He is going to be the, the, the center of blessing to all nations. Did you notice that in Genesis 17 that John was reading, Abraham was not called Abraham. He was first called Abram, which just means exalted father. But then Abraham means father of many nations, father of many peoples. And what we're going to learn is that nations, that's if you translate it into Greek, ethnos, that's the same word for Gentiles. I will make you the father. He's the father of the Jews, but God is saying in changing his name, I'm going to make you the father of all nations, including the Gentiles. And so there's already a promise in his name change that even though the Jews will be the conduit of God's blessing, his blessing is really for all nations. We really don't see that in its fullness until probably the book of Acts. That's when you really start to see it. Acts chapter 11, Cornelius' house. He's a Roman centurion. He's and he's a, a God-fearer. He prays to the Lord, and God says, bring the apostle Peter to your house, and he's going to preach a sermon. And then, in their midst, not the Jews, but the Gentiles, all of these Romans and Greeks, the Holy Spirit falls on them. God is with them. Now, we hear little, what do you call um, something before an earthquake? Tremor. You hear tremors of this event, the enfolding of the Gentiles. You hear tremors when God doesn't turn the Syrophoenician, uh, when Jesus doesn't turn the Syrophoenician woman away. When he heals the centurion's son and servant. He's, he, uh, when he does ministry in the area of the Greeks, he's not ministering to just the children of Israel. 
We're going to hear tremors of that in the book of Isaiah, where you hear the image of a tent. The tent of the Jews will actually be expanded, and all nations will bring their offerings to the Lord. They'll bring their treasures to bow down and give to the Lord. All nations, Gentiles. So, we already start to hear that in Abraham's, in Abram's name change. Hey, let's look specifically, what are these promises that God makes to Abraham? He's going to have many descendants. Somebody with a timeline. David, you got your timeline? Unfold it, and then look on the back of the timeline and see if you can find this symbol. It's a bunch of stars. Once you find that symbol, uh, flip it over to the back, David. There you go. I know these timelines are, the first time you get them, you're like, what is this? Is this a map of California? Why is it so long? Do you see any stars anywhere? Yes. Great. Cynthia, would you mind reading, what does it say next to stars? Great. Read that very last part again. Good. That's going to be key. Abraham's children are those who are born according to the promise. So the point is, try to number the stars in the heavens. Good luck. Try to number the sand on the seashore. Good luck. The dust of the earth. Have a good time with that. Each metaphor, it just there's, it's futile to number them. Again, God is going to do the work of causing his people to bear children. And through their children, his promises will be realized. Many years later, Jerusalem is going to be compared to being bereaved of her figurative children. But God will once again cause one who is barren to bear many children. Listen to this. This is Isaiah 54. This is talking about the city of Jerusalem. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and the people, the desolate cities. There's a promise that God's city is going to be, this is the heavenly Jerusalem, God's city will be populated. But in the midst of Jeremiah and Isaiah, they're seeing God's kingdom, Israel, being destroyed by kingdoms like Assyria and Babylon. In Genesis 15, Abraham explains to God, imagine explaining to God, uh, God, you remember what you promised me? Well, I don't have any children. And then it's funny, in Genesis 15, there's a pause, and then it just says, and Abraham said, even though he was just talking, and Abraham said, I do have my servant, Eliezer. And it, it was common, uh, if you don't have a son, you just give your servant all of those possessions. I, I do have a servant, I can give it, but God had promised to Abraham a son from his own body, not just an heir. So God says, nope, sorry, I'm going to provide for you. And then in Genesis 16, 
after 10 years have passed. Has God ever made a promise to you and you wanted it fulfilled the next day? Abraham and Sarah wait 10 years and then they decide we're going to take matters into our own hands. Sarah has a maidservant named Hagar. And so Sarah tells Abraham, lay with my maidservant. And by the way, this was just a common way of doing things. If you can't have, I mean, in ancient times, if you can't have children with your wife, you go into your servant. That way you'll have children to care for you in your old age. Um, so Abraham has a child with the maidservant, Ishmael. But um, is this the child of the promise? No, still not. The New Testament will help us understand, especially if you want to look at Galatians 4, what makes someone a child of Abraham. It's not whether he or she is a biological child, like Ishmael, but whether a person is born in a supernatural way, like Isaac, born by God's spirit in fulfillment to God's promise, which is why I had Cynthia read that very last phrase again. The children of Israel are those of faith, Galatians 3 says. Galatians 4 says, now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. If we belong to Christ, we're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So those of you that have ever heard spiritual Israel, if you've ever heard that term, that's referring to the church. That's the, the Christian people, those who are children of the promise. They've been born new into the family of God by faith. So, Abraham's descendants include both Jews and Gentiles. <clears throat> so those who are considered to be children by faith. Did you guys learn the father Abraham had many sons? Many sons had father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right hand, left hand, right leg. Did you guys all grow up on that? So good. Turn around, stick out your tongue, poke, poke your sister. Take some encouragement. Do we see God's family growing and growing and growing like the stars in the heavens? In China, Mao Zedong began to expel missionaries in 1949. At the time, there were about 4.5 million Christians in China at that time. Today, there could be over 100 million Christians in China. In Sub-Saharan Africa, in 1900, Christians made up about 10% of the population. Today, it has grown to 60%, close to half a billion people. Domestically, the fastest growing religious demographic in the US are non-Anglo Christian churches. When Greta and I were in Boston, there were more people worshiping Jesus in a language other than English in Boston than worshiping in English. Take hope when you look around the children of Abraham, just how many there are. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. God makes this promise. You're gonna have a relationship with God. It's made possible through faith in Jesus Christ. And it has nothing to do whether you're ethnically Israel or not. And then he makes a promise about a promised land. Are we back in Genesis? Sorry, I'm skipping all over the place. Let's go back to Genesis. And let's look at chapter 15. 
Genesis 15, and Susan, would you be good enough to read that for us? We're going to do Genesis 15, verses 13 through 16. Thank you. What does God tell Abraham as far as expectations of the promised land? Yeah, not yet. What's going to happen first? Let's say it again. Okay, yeah. The Amorites are going to be completing their sin. Specifically, what's going to happen to the, the nation of Israel? Yeah, they're going to be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. All right. Uh, what is this going to do to Abraham's morale? Oh, it's like, <laughs> Ramona, I'd love to get that for your birthday when you're 99. Like, okay, the prom all right, the promise is coming. And here's how Hebrews makes sense of this. Abraham has faith. He's looking for a better country. He himself will not go into the promised land, but he starts finding hope in God that there's a better spiritual country that he's actually being brought into, a heavenly country. He dwells in the promised land like a sojourner, a foreigner, living in tents and not taking full possession of it. When you read about Abraham, he's, he's like a foreigner in the land that God has promised him. Even though possession of the land is central in the Old Testament, there are hints in scripture that what God promises Abraham is far more than the physical land of Israel. The patriarchs are looking for a heavenly country. We need to keep two things in view. The immediate fulfillment of these promises in the Old Testament, they're actually going to be brought into the promised land, right? And the larger redemptive plan of God extending into all of eternity. Both are happening parallel to each other. Boom, we've got our presence cloud, finally. Here we go. God also promises to Abram that he will be with him. And now we get presence. I promise my presence with you. A restoration of what was lost in the Garden of Eden when they're kicked out, they're going to regain. The nations will be blessed in Abraham's seed. We've started talking about this a little bit. Genesis 12 says, In you all the families, all the people of the earth shall be blessed. God's purpose in blessing Abraham is not for his own sake alone, but that he might be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Um, therefore, mission is at the very heart of God in these promises to the patriarchs. But instead of being a blessing to the nations, the Israelites become a curse to them when God judged them for their sin. And what is our symbol to remember the curse? Somebody? What's our symbol for exile? The vulture. This is Jeremiah 24, 9. It says, I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach 
a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I drive them. This is as a result of disobedience to these commandments that we're going to get next week. So there, imagine this. The whole, imagine that you buy an air conditioner. You install it because you're like, man, it is just sweltering. You install the air conditioner, and you're running it. And then you're like, man, this just doesn't seem to be doing its job. I just don't get it. I feel warmer. And then somebody comes over and takes a look at your air conditioner, and they're like, oh, this is a heater. You inst that's why it's not, you install the heater. So not only is Israel not doing what they were supposed to do, be a blessing, they're doing the opposite of what they were supposed to be. They are now a curse, a byword to those who are around them. When people walk by, they used to, the, the idea is, we hear this in, in Zechariah, the idea is that somebody, stand up. Okay, I'm, I'm the nations around Israel. Imagine Andrew is Israel, okay? I'm going to say, hey, Israel, where are you going? You say, I'm going to go worship the Lord. I'm going to go worship the Lord. And this is God's plan. Grabbing a hold of Israel by the robes and saying, I want to come worship the Lord with you. That's what Zechariah says. That's the idea, is God's people are actually supposed to be magnetic. Give Andrew a round of applause. Okay. Instead, what's happened is as people walk by and they see Israel, they, they curse them. They hiss at them. They become a byword. They're a, they're a joke. So they're doing the exact opposite of what they were supposed to do. But God's promise is all the nations are supposed to be actually blessed. When God tells Abraham that his seed, in his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, the word nation is the Hebrew goyim. It's the same way uh, when the, when the Old Testament is translated into Greek, the word is ethnos, it's Gentiles. If you were to read this in the Greek, the way that Jesus and all of his contemporaries are, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, they would be reading Gentiles, the non-Jews. God's plan from the very beginning was that the Gentiles would be incorporated into God's family, which we talked about. Um, he's going to be the father of many nations, changed his name from exalted father to father of many nations to make that point. <clears throat> kings, ooh, kings are going to come <clears throat> from Abraham's line, the line of Judah. A few generations later, we're going to read about, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has um, 12 sons, and those sons are what's going to be called the tribes of Israel. After Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel. And one specifically, the tribe of Judah, is going to be the messianic line. That's the promise. Kings are going to come from your line, from Judah. Uh, this, anticipates, this anticipates the designated royal line will come through Abraham's great-grandson Judah. Judah has two sons by Tamar. One son is named Perez. The promise of kingship is especially brought to the foreground in the book of Ruth. Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. And right down here. Here's Ruth. God's king is coming from the line of Judah. If you read at the end of Ruth, there's a genealogy. And the genealogy points to, okay, Ruth remarries. She's widowed because her husband dies. She marries Boaz, and they give birth, Obed, Jesse, and Jesse's got eight sons, and the youngest one is going to be a king after God's own heart, King David. 
And so Ruth is just, it's an awesome, awesome story. It's amazing, but um, I think it also serves this genealogical purpose. It's connecting David to Judah. And what does Abraham do? Let's talk about this gift. Abraham believes that God is actually going to perform what he's promised. He believes it. <clears throat> Abraham has faith in God, firstly. On account of this faith, God declares that Abraham is in a right relationship with God. Not because he's living perfectly. You're going to be in a right relationship because you, you believe that I'm going to bring about my purposes in your life. We're going to go to Romans for this, John. You're going to be happy. Uh, flip over to Romans chapter 4. And John, I want to hear your question as we're going there. Romans 4, everybody. What's up, John? I totally believe it. See, I knew that I could distract you by taking us to Romans. He's just a kid in a candy store. <gasps> Valerie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are great examples. John, go. Yeah, the doctrine of election is something that reminds us we don't put faith in our faith. If I put faith in my faith, I'd be in a bad situation. I put faith in God's faithfulness. If we're imperfect, our faith is imperfect. God's yeah, yeah. John. Mm. Yeah. We're going to talk about two different kind of nuances of faith, justifying faith and confirming faith. Justifying faith comes from belief. You just be believe in God. Now, you're not living perfectly in that belief, but we're going to find confirming faith is as you're growing and being made holy in, in Christ's image, justifying and confirming faith. And actually, Paul and James, when they talk about Abraham, one is talking about justifying faith. That's what we're going to read. But James talks about Abraham's confirming faith, being willing to offer up his child. And it all comes from God. Just it does. I mean, it's a constant confirming of your established uh, okay. Yeah. 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 That's good, John. All right, we're looking at Romans 19. Sorry, sorry, Romans 4, verse 19. I'm going to do a little bit of reading because we're going to stop in here a little bit. <clears throat> okay, verse 19. He, Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, 
which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. So get this, God essentially would be raising life from the dead. That's the idea. Similarly, he's going to trust in Genesis 22 when he's called to put his own promised, promised son to death, he believes God can raise the dead to life. And if promises are supposed to come through this child and I kill him, it must mean that God is going to raise him to, raise him to life again because the promises are coming through him. It's the same faith. Um, verse 22, continuing on. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Righteousness is given. The theological word is imputed. It's imputed to us when we have resurrection faith. That Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Casket empty. It's the same kind of faith that you see in Abraham. And we're going to skip over to Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. God justifies the ungodly. Abraham is not in right relationship with God because he's a good person or because he's morally upright. He didn't work hard in order to be a good person in God's sight. Romans 4 says, And to the one who does not work, who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is counted as righteousness. Um, there was a gentleman that I used to go running with, and we were doing a really, really long run, and so we just had lots of time to talk. And he had grown up um, religious, and I asked him, I mean, he had grown up Christian, and I asked him, basically, what takes you to heaven? And he said, by trying to be the best person you can be. But then the conversation went, how, well, how do you know you've done enough? How then do you know that you've done enough? Instead, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's actually the truth that Romans keeps telling me that I need to remember. He became sin, 2 Corinthians 5, who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So that's the truth of this gift. We don't work for it. We don't try to be the best person we can be. God has sent Jesus to be that best person. And with faith in his death and resurrection as Savior, salvation is given as a gift. God justifies Abraham on account of his faith. It's a gift of his grace. Uh, God confirms his promise by making a covenant with Abraham. After God tells Abraham that he will give him his land, Abraham asks how he will indeed know that he will possess the land. And then a formal covenant-making ceremony takes place. God 
in the form of a smoking torch passes between animals that have been cut in the middle. This is the covenant ceremony. You cut some animals in half and you put half of their body here, half their body here, and it gives you this nice lane to walk through. And the idea basically is my life given for the promises of this covenant. If I break it, I will become like this pigeon. I don't know how you chop a pigeon right down the half, by the way. Uh, notably, there's no stipulations. There's no ground rules. What we're going to see with this covenant is it's called bilateral. God says, if you do your part, I'll do this. If you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey, I will curse you. Those are stipulations of the covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, there are no stipulations. I'm just flat out going to do this for you. And then he gives them a sign of the covenant, circumcision. After further promises are made to Abraham in, in chapter 17, God immediately tells him to circumcise every male in his household. That's a few hundred people. And this includes his one and only biological son, Ishmael. Circumcision functions to unite Abraham's biological descendants with foreigners, those who are not his seed. So when God's people come out of the land of Egypt, where they were enslaved, Exodus tells us that they were a mixed multitude. They were not just Jews, but a bunch of the Gentiles had joined them. Well, Jews, Gentiles, who's God's people? Well, they're going to show it by a sign of the covenant. Any of the families where the males are circumcised, that's the sign of the covenant. The way that we interpret these promises as reformed, uh, in reformed traditions, is that in the new covenant that God makes through Jesus Christ, in his blood, there's a different sign of the covenant. It is circumcised heart is spiritual, but how do we show the entrance into God's people? To become a member of the church, you are? You're baptized. You're baptized. That's the outward sign and symbol of the new covenant. And so we see when we read, and again, this is the Reformed tradition, Baptists understand this differently, but for the Reformed, we see a sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, circumcision. Sign of the covenant in the New Covenant would be baptism. Uh, we talked a little bit about this. Abraham offers up his beloved son, that's the, the son of the promise, by faith and in obedience to God. God knows that he can raise Abraham, uh, Isaac from the dead if he needs to, and God provides a ram in the place of his son Isaac so he doesn't have to sacrifice his son. When James tells this story, James says, look, this is evidence of Abraham's faith. And that's why James talks so much about works. You can't have faith that's not evidenced in works. If you don't have works, it betrays the fact that you don't have true faith. One leads to the other, like C.S. Lewis's imagery of scissors. You've got a blade that's faith. You've got a blade that's works. They work together. It's a gift of God, right, to be able to cut. That confirms the faith of Abraham. But here's the question. Was Abraham saved? Was he justified because of his willingness to offer up Isaac? No. He was justified by belief, right? And so that's called justifying faith. That's what Paul was talking about in Romans. But when you read the book of James, you see confirming faith. 
justifying faith, Paul. Reading God's word and awakening to the message of the gospel where you believe God will save you and has saved you from every power of sin, the darkness of the world, and Satan, and that he did so out of love by sending his son, Jesus Christ. That is justifying faith. Confirming faith, making the decision to place the lives of your children in his hands, living your life not for self-fulfillment, but for love of God and neighbor, giving of your time, talents, and treasure for the kingdom of God, which is often less visible than the kingdom of the world, as we were talking about today, that is confirming faith. In other words, behaviors that are made out of faith in Christ. Savvy? Savvy. Heirs of God's promises? Um, Ishmael is not going to be the heir of God's promises, but his son Isaac will be. And then Isaac's firstborn son, Esau, will not be the heir of God's promises, but his secondborn, Jacob. God's election is seen when he doesn't favor the firstborn son, the child who's usually given the double portion of the inheritance. And just kind of wrapping it up, God's covenant with Abraham is established with Isaac and Jacob. It's reiterated. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Somebody remember what Israel means? What is it? Uh, that's a great guess. Wrestles with God. It's an apt name for God's people, isn't it? Wrestles with God because of Jacob's actual experience wrestling with an angel of God. His hip is wrenched out. Wrestles with God. Well, that's a great name illustration for what we're going to see in our lives. We wrestle with God. Abraham, uh, excuse me, Jacob, Israel is going to have 12 sons. And God promises, God's promises to the patriarchs are going to be seen kind of coming through all of the rest of this timeline. They're going to be delivered from slavery in Egypt because God remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're not destroyed after making a golden calf because of God's promises to the patriarchs. They take possession of the land of Canaan under Joshua because of God's promises to the patriarchs. God will bring Israel back to the land after exiles because of the promises to the patriarchs. We just keep hearing it in Exodus and in Joshua and in Leviticus over and over and over again. God is going to be faithful to his gift, even though wrestles with God is doing a great job messing things up. The sons of Israel are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, but God remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Deliverance has come. And God has already told Abraham, remember, to expect that his descendants will be enslaved for 400 years in a foreign land. God will deliver to his people and provide a way for his promises to be fulfilled. And we're going to start hearing about how he does that next week with Sinai. Now is the time to close in prayer. If you have lingering questions or anything like that, we can stay and talk and gab, but let's pray. Lord, we give you praise for these great promises that are going to be realized in Jesus Christ. They're promises that you um, make good on. Help us to believe, to trust that every day, that that belief actually shapes everything that we live for promised land, a relationship with God that is uninterrupted and unsevered by anything that the world and the flesh and the devil throws at us for eternal rest, 
for blessing to come through us, your church, to all kingdoms of the earth. So Lord, we thank you for these promises. May we bring them and keep them uh, at the centermost place of our being. In Christ's name, amen.